Welcome to the Knowledge Nuggets podcast hosted by John Ingram. And good afternoon, everyone, uh, depending on where you are, I guess, in the world. Afternoon to us. And welcome to PerfWeb number 79. This is day two. And uh, we're going to be doing uh, John Ingram's Knowledge Nuggets, episode number 18. So I want to thank everyone to the show uh, for everyone's information. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, you can do so at contact at perfusioneducation.com. Our call-in number uh, is uh, there listed on the screen. You can read that. You can call in, be live on the air. We'd love to hear from anyone. I can't help to say it like that. Uh, the scroll bar that you see on the bottom now is going to have all of our information about our social media sites, uh, how to contact us, the call-in number, and any other messages that we may need to give you. So please feel free to watch that scroll bar, and if you have any questions or whatever it may be, you know, I haven't reminded everybody to make sure you have a YouTube account, a Google Mail account or whatever, so that you can uh, like us and subscribe uh, share our site on uh, YouTube, sub especially subscribe and give us the thumbs up. And on Facebook and now Twitter, uh, make sure that you uh, make comments uh, there as well. Those are very important to us and they really help with our rankings as we move up. You know, I have to, can I give a, I got, let me get through this and I'll go forward with that. Um, then you have our MediWeb app. I want to talk about that very quickly. There are two platforms, two MediWeb apps. One is a critical care application for perfusionists and ECMO specialists, also for critical care nurses, and it has multiple categories in it. Perfusion, which is do if you're going to do a case in the morning, put all your information in, it calculates everything for you, and you're done. You also have an ECMO section, you have a hemodynamics section, clinical calculator, there's an IV rate calculator, which is also a standalone app. And then you have a conversion section for a few minor conversions that you might want to do that are common to what we do every day. Uh, so it's not overwhelming. We tried to put in these apps the right things that you really need. Uh, but of course, I'm biased. I love the critical care application uh, app for perfusionists and ECMO specialists, critical care docs, critical care nurses. But the IV rate calculator is a standalone app, is also a great app for any nurse out there that's managing IVs, in particular also in the ICU. I want to talk very briefly, too, about our podcasts. All of our programs go on our podcast platforms, and you can find them on any, whatever your favorite podcast streaming service is. All you have to do is look up Perf Web Podcast Series, and you will find all of these programs, and you can listen to them later uh, at your convenience while you're driving down the road or whatever the case may be. Uh, just a lot of fun. We have some great discussions. We always have, it's always very lively. Um, and uh, so please join us there at the podcast as well. Um, I wanted to briefly, uh, uh, the one last thing I wanted to tell you is we're adding a new feature. And so as we get through 2022 and evolving and continuing to grow our platform, we've added all this new technology. We're going to be doing more of the simulations. We're just really trying to figure out what the best way to do all of this is. But I think we've got it sort of narrowed down at this point in time. And we're going to be releasing a lot of new stuff and we're going to see a lot of other new things. We've learned how to do the simulations a little bit better online. And uh, we're going to make some more advanced simulations so that you can really participate in those uh, but of course we're going to be doing these things also in person and live as we move forward and continue to grow in our industry uh, right now I mean I don't mind saying we are the number one platform uh, for online perfusion education and our intention is to continue to grow from there and uh, I think it's indisputable at this point but I want it truly be indisputable uh, when we get right to it but we are adding a new feature when we have discussions and if or lectures, and if anybody says anything that we feel um, is not is 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 just doesn't make any sense, or if something happens which is somewhat earth shattering in some way, whether it be a little tremor or a big earthquake, we have our new goat. <laughs> and when you see that goat, that means that somebody 
feels that something that got said doesn't make any sense or uh, is wrong. And so we're going to try to make this fun. We're going to try to make this entertaining. We're going to try to keep it sophisticated, although at times I think that uh, you have to be real and you have to be human and you have to really look at things from a, uh, a very, uh, a very uh, 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 easy to digest and easy to understand level as opposed to being very sophisticated with all of the big words that we use all of the time. So with all of that said, uh, we're going to jump right into our program. Uh, there's my friend John Ingram uh, coming to you from looks like inside the hospital in Florida. He could talk a little bit more about that. But our his knowledge nuggets episode number 18 is going to be on retro the truth about retrograde cardioplegia, which I think is going to be a very good uh, lecture because, of course, I am a strong advocate of retrograde cerebral perfusion for uh, circ arrest cases and isolated cerebral perfusion, much more so than I am antigrade. Um, and I think that retrograde cardioplegia opens up a tremendous door for us to get better distribution in multivessel disease, especially with diffuse disease and uh, really tight occlusions where you can't get the cardioplegia down into that area of the muscle. But it's got some tr some 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 worries. There's always been concerned about protecting the right heart when uh, you use retrograde. I have a feeling John is going to talk about all of that stuff. Uh, and give us some good detailed information on that. But before we get started, and John, welcome to the show. Thank you again, or th welcome to your show. Uh, welcome to the studios virtually. Hey, good to see you guys again. Good to see you too. So, John, my understanding is, and you may have more information about it than I do, that uh, perfusion.com has either merged with, been acquired by, sold to, whatever term you want to use to uh, Epic Staffing. I don't know who Epic Staffing is. I know that I received that email with the uh, resignation letter of uh, Brian, uh, who ends his tenure with Perfusion.com at the end of this month. Um, what do you know about it and what's going on? Well, actually, not very much. I received that same email, I believe, that, that he sent to probably everyone that was on his contact list at some point. Um, and, and, and pretty graciously in the email actually invited anyone who wished to speak with him personally about his departure, that he would, he would absolutely set a time of, uh, offside and speak with anyone personally about, you know, what, what was going on and, and what was transpiring with him personally and with his company. And I, I, I have not had the, uh, the opportunity to do that. I've been too busy as well as, as other things and I. I, I know Brian. I don't. I wouldn't say he's a close friend. I've worked with him as an associate, you know, off and on over the years. But one thing interesting about Perfusion.com, Joe, and maybe you know this or maybe you do not, but Brian was a Perfusion student in Perfusion School. There was a project that he was assigned to, and he decided to start a website and called it Perfusion.com. And back in those days, that name was available. So this whole thing that he started started off as a project as a perfusion student when he was in perfusion school. And once he graduated, he continued on with it. And lo and behold, uh, what is it, a good 20 years later, I guess, this is this is where he's at. So I, I don't know the details. I know he's going to continue to be involved in perfusion and pumping cases, according to his email that he sent out. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, um, so I guess is Epic. So is Epic staffing because I know they're doing the Sanibel meeting, right? They're they're mm -hmm. actually doing that still the the today through the I think Saturday. Um, I haven't had a mm -hmm. chance to look at that or see how that's going or anything like that. But uh, are they going to continue with that meeting? Are they going to is Perfusion.com as a platform going to continue to exist, or is Epic Staffing just absorbing their people, whatever accounts they have? And because that Epic Epic Staffing sounds like a staffing company to me, it doesn't sound like it's a Perfusion contract service organization. Well, I uh, I would hope that uh, they would hold on to the Perfusion identity for the Perfusion. Uh, audience that they have, which is a pretty substantial one for people who do go to that website and, and that have heard of his company and work with his company in some way or another. But uh, sometimes these big companies, 
have a mind of your, have a mind of their own, as you know. And I think they want to all diversify into a broader name, other than just be cornered into perfusion, right? I mean, specialty care is kind of an open name. Comprehensive care is an open name. a multitude of things. So maybe that's where they are, um, where they're headed. We'll, we'll have to remain to be seen. I don't know anyone on the inside of the company, and and I haven't had any conversation with anybody on the inside to uh, to see what their their plans are. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, fair enough. Well, with that said, um, I don't want to 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 uh, to delay you any farther. I'm very interested in hearing about the truth about uh, retrograde cardioplegia and John Ingram. The the uh, floor is yours. All right, guys. Uh, welcome to the show, everyone. Um, this is Knowledge Nuggets. Uh, I'm your host, John Ingram. We are at episode number 18, as Joe mentioned earlier, April 27th. 2022. And as with this topic and with all others, you will discover that I have no disclosures for any of these topics. We have a motto at Knowledge Nuggets that we came up with called spend a little time and expand your mind. And we came up with that because sometimes you go and spend two, three days at a meeting and you walk away scratching your head thinking, what did I come away with? We hope that we can spend just a little time and you can actually come away with something that you can take home with you in these knowledge nuggets and that's how we got the name as well so this week's topic is going to be the truth about retrograde cardioplegia i thought um thought we would talk about that this week and as anybody knows who's seen the show before we have a format it's a different topic each each week or each session we try to give you something to take home uh, a little nugget of knowledge if you see a gold nugget in the right upper corner of the screen that is a take-home slide. It's something you can snapshot, screenshot, and hopefully tuck it in your phone, tuck it in your pocket, and be a better clinician tomorrow, clinician tomorrow when you run into something where this might apply to. We try to give a highly impactful 15 minutes. Following that, we do a surprise topic, just two to three minutes, something I call the gem of the week. It could be absolutely anything that we come up with of interest. After that, there's a panel discussion and questions. And anybody who ever wants to email me about this uh, topic or any other other ones, john.ingram at perfweb.us, please email me there and I will respond to everyone who sends me an email or a comment or question to that email address. So what is retrograde cardioplegia? Well, let's start with a definition. Uh, the, de the delivery of cardioplegia solution to the heart via the coronary sinus in the reverse direction of normal blood flow, i.e. retrograde perfusion. And Joe, I'm gonna stop right here for a second. You mentioned something that, that's, that you like a lot in perfusion, that's retrograde cerebral perfusion. Those two things, retrocerebral perfusion and retrograde coronary sinus cardioplegia or perfusion is permissible only because in both those physiologic sections of our body, the venous system does not have one-way valves. So I found that of interest that we can do retrograde cerebral perfusion and retrograde coronary sinus perfusion because the venous systems in those two sections do not have the one-way valves, which would normally prevent us from being able to do these two techniques. Mm -hmm. And that's Getting because you don't, have, you don't have the same hydrostatic forces uh, and gravity working against you as you do in your in the inferior portion of your body. Right. So the valves really wouldn't uh, wouldn't serve much of a purpose, actually. Not much uh, purpose. A, retro a retrograde cannula. They're designed to cannulate the coronary sinus, and they're offered or manflating cuff models. Thirty-five to forty millimeters of pressure is usually what's maintained during infusion. And you control that by controlling your perfusion flow rate. You try to keep the pressure uh, less than 50 is usually the max, but more than 50 coronary sinus rupture. And before I forget, Joe, I'd just like to get off on the side note here real quickly. I've been in many traveling uh, situations, as you probably know, and I would say in the last 10, 20 years, every now and then I run into a place that, that doesn't really adhere to that 50 pressure very closely. And I've seen people that 
60 and 70 creep into their protocols. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that or what you do at your institutions there in Houston. But um, back when this first started, we were very, very concerned about pressures above 40 and certainly above 50. Mm-hmm. And we did have ruptures back in the early days of this. Now, part of that was due to the lack of sophistication of the cannula, but also part of it was due to traumatic insertions on the learning curve of the surgeons. Yes, I would agree with Remember that. that? I have ruptured a couple of coronary sinuses. It's, you know, it's uh, it's no fun. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, generally it's not fatal, but it's not fun. And uh, people get all worked up and exercised over it. Uh, but it does happen at times. And uh, that can be for a variety of reasons. But I think most of the pumps now have the automatic cutoffs that you can set the pressure so it won't go higher than a certain amount. And that 50 you're talking about now, are you talking about you're you're not talking about your line pressure here you're talking about a line that's being fed from right. the tip of the cannula going to a uh, pressure manometer right or to a transducer right. the actual <clears throat> pressure in the coronary sinus itself which these cannulas have a uh, a pressure port usually near the tip to yes. tell you that now um i have seen a coronary sinus rupture that was fatal now you got to really? go back a lot of number, a lot of number of years, but yeah, we could not repair it. It was impossible to repair it, and the patient just eventually bled to death. So, oh, wow. um, I know nowadays the sophistication, the learning curve, is so far uh, more advanced that um, perhaps you can run higher pressures. But I'm just when you pull up research articles, you still find these numbers uh, recommending these type of numbers. But I know people yeah, I... tend to go. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to belabor this, but I think a lot of times it's not necessarily just the pressure. It's if you have it up against the wall, it's partially kinked. There's an obstruction and you're flowing into it and there's there's no the outlet is inadequate and you you basically blow it up that way. I think that's where you really run into problems. And I think that those problems became less so when surgeons learned to as you said the learning curve but when surgeons learned to not insert it too deeply inserting Mm -hmm. it really deep is where you seem to have the most problems now you can't have it not in you know we're going to know that if it's in the atrium but you know that 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 becomes a problem if you're already doing the case and now you have to re and reinsert it that's very difficult to do in a completely empty heart so um but but a, not you know in just enough is far better than in way too far i believe and we're, and we're going to talk about why that is in, in, a, in a few slides down the, uh, down the road yeah i know i always get ahead of you i'm sorry for that no 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 i i wanted to, i wanted to start the discussion early because there's a couple things i wanted to hit on there right off right off the bat and but what about some indications about retrograde cardioplegia. It's indicated really whenever a more complete delivery of cardioplegic solution to the myocardium is desired. We'll talk about what we mean by that. In patients with diseased coronary arteries whose coronary blockages would prohibit adequate anti-grade cardioplegia flow. You know, the patients come to us, Joe, with blockages already. That's why they're here, right? So mm-hmm. if blood flow if blood flow cannot get past the blockages, car, uh, cardioplegia is going to face similar obstacles, correct? Yes. And, and, mm-hmm. and everything tends to flow. You know, fluid tends to follow the path of least resistance. And so mm-hmm. if you have a really tight occlusion, let's say, in your mid-LED or, your, or one of your OMs that has a big distribution area or a big-time lesion in your right, um, it's going to take, it's not going to go down there as well. So you may get an arrest, but you're going to have an area that is relatively unprotected. And if you're using Del Nido, man, that's when I see Del Nido getting people in that do that use Del Nido for just coronaries. I, I'm not a big supporter of it. I, I don't, I don't like it. I don't think you, I think that there are. It's infrequent, but I think there are times when you just simply do not get the distribution you need for 40 minutes of ischemic time, and then you're coming off, you're you're finishing the case, you're trying to come off pump, and the patient acts like they 
uh, have inadequate myocardial protection. Well, I mean, I think that's what I think that's why that happens. Right. And um, we're going to talk about that again in just one more second here. And you also want to look at, in, at patients with significant myocardial hypertrophy. Actually, retrograde cardioplegia is a benefit in those patients. Um, next slide, David. So here, what I circle here, and I'm coming back to this, the whole driving force for this whole retrograde movement that happened pretty much in the early 90s, mid 90s, throughout the 90s especially, uh, the driving force for that was exactly what we were just talking about, Joe. We're, we're scratching our heads saying we have somebody with a with four vessel disease, a lot of chest pain, you know, cardiac failure, poor, poor myocardial function, and then we try to flow our cardioplegia, our preservation, uh, uh, you know, fluids right into these same blockages. That really is not seeming to make a whole lot of sense. And I can tell you that, that we got away with this for many years. And one of the big reasons why we did is because when we went on bypass and we hemodilute these patients, that hemodilution actually facilitated our cardioplegia in getting past these blockages quite a bit better than the patient's normal, uh, more viscous blood flow did. That actually was a benefit. And to this day, by the way, that's still a benefit in, 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 in allowing the integrated cardioplegia to get past some of these blockages. But, but nonetheless, the problem still exists and the concerns are there. And when you have people come off bypass and they struggle and their myocardium is poorly functioning, they need a balloon pump, we've per poorly preserved that myocardium you know, 99% of the time, that would that would be the number one reason. So this was a driving force of why people tried to think about how can we do a retrograde uh, cardioplegia. So just so people know, you know, what was the motivation there? So then we have uh, more indications. For example, if you have moderate to severe aortic regurgitation, basically that's an indication for retrograde because it's almost almost impossible to give adequate antegrade if you don't have a good uh, seal around your aortic valve because it goes down into the ventricle, doesn't go into the coronary arteries very well. So also an indication for retrograde might be an existing patent graft, such as an internal mammary artery, which is providing an external source of perfusion, washing out your cardioplegia. If you had an anticipated prolonged pump time, such as in a long repair of the aortic root or combination valve graft, so on, or you might want retrograde cardioplegia whenever, as a surgeon, you just want to have a non-interruption of the procedure because you don't have to stop what you're doing and um, wait for the integrate cardioplegia to, to go down. You can just say, give retrograde and you can continue to work, especially in the cases of valves, primarily. So there was an added benefit when we... Um, when we had several years of retrograde cardi uh, cardioplegia practice. And one of those was that during aortic valve procedures, retrograde cardioplegia actually allowed and provided for the flushing of debris out of the coronary ostea. If there was any type of debris that had gone down the coronary ostea, retrograde cardioplegia was a wonderful way to have a piece of suture or maybe some plaque or anything that might have fallen down the coronary artery. The other thing that happened is that retrograde cardioplegia de-aired the coronaries and de-aired the aortic root during that final dose, something that we weren't able to do very well with antegrade. And then during reoperations, old vein grafts, which may be severed, and any distal embolic material was, being, was able to be flushed out of the coronaries and, old, and also flushed out of the old grafts, basically, basically because of the retrograde delivery fashion of the cardioplegia. So all these were side benefits that I don't think we anticipated in the very early days of retrograde cardioplegia. So there are some complications, the risk of coronary sinus rupture we mentioned. Uh, and here is, Joe, there's a risk of inserting the catheter in too far. And what happens is the, the, the great cardiac vein, which empties into the coronary sinus, it bifurcates into much smaller branches. When it does bifurcate, the branches are much smaller. 
So if you feed that catheter in too far and get the tip of that uh, retrograde catheter down close or into one of those smaller veins, such as the middle cardiac vein that's bifurcating off of it, this is when you can have very high pressures and you can have rupture of the coronary sinus. So we need to think about the coronary anatomy and we think about retrograde cardioplegia. So I wanted to show us a couple of slides here real quick. And basically we have the coronary artery, left main coronary artery, right main coronary artery. And basically these feed the entire muscle of the left ventricle, the right ventricle and so on, as we all know. And these are, are gonna uh, branch into smaller and smaller vessels until the point where they feed all the capillaries of the myocardium. And then you have a shadowing circulation after that, which is the venous system, which is pretty much, God damn it, uh, it's going to mirror mirror this coronary artery. Uh, Next pathway, slide. The, yeah. So you have the, you know, the basically the, 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 the retracement back of the unoxygenated, deoxygenated blood, desaturated blood that's gone through the capillaries. Now it's going to return through a venous system and eventually empty into the coronary sinus, which empties actually into the right atrium. And so if we take a look at this, you see the great cardiac vein is really where it all comes together. And then the next slide, you have the uh, opening of the right atrium there. We can see the coronary sinus is emptying into the right atrium. And there is a half valve over the coronary sinus known as the Thabesian valve. And it's a half valve because it's the physiologic attempt to both allow the free flow of the venous blood to enter the right atrium without resistance, but at the same time, a little bit of a closing that happens to prevent when the atrium contracts of it pushing a lot of venous blood back into the coronary sinus. So this half valve seems to do a pretty good job of serving both of those um, physiologic flows, both out of the, into the atrium and trying to prevent it from going back into the coronary sinus during atrial contraction. So this, by the way, is also going to be something we have to negotiate when we insert that uh, retrograde cannula. So the contraindications, largely, there's just largely mainly just one, actually, right off the bat, and that is just in the case of someone who has persistent less superior vena cava. The incidence is very rare, about 0.1 to 0.3%, but PLSBC is a vascular anomaly that begins at the junction of the left subclavian and the internal jugular veins. And this uh, anomaly, anomalous vein, will pass down the left side adjacent to the arch of the aorta. And this most commonly drains right into the coronary sinus, emptying into the right atrium. This uh, PLSBC is a persistent remnant of a vessel that is present as a counterpart of the normal right-sided superior vena cava in early embryological development, but normally disappears later. So that's why they call it persistent, because if you're born with it or it, it continues into uh, your growth stage, um, it's a persistent uh, anomaly that should have that should have disappeared long long before. So we take a look at it real quick. You see a normal heart on the left, and it's just a ligament. A ligament of Marshall there is what it turns into. But if it's a persistent, you'll see that it actually is a large anomalous vein going right down into the coronary sinus there. And if you see the next slide, it kind of looks like this. And there's many variations of this, by the way. But basically, the left venous drainage, which should have um, uh, shriveled up and become a ligament, remains patent and jump, dumps all this venous blood into the coronary sinus. So obviously now, if you cannulate the coronary sinus in hopes that you were going to give retrograde cardioplegia, all of this is going to be going back up this very large vein, and you're not going to be giving cardioplegia to the, uh, the retrograde cardioplegia to the myocardium. So this is a contraindication. So let's talk about the Thabesian system, because right away when you start to understand giving retrograde cardioplegia, you, you, you remember from school you were taught something about something called the Thabesian system. Well, the Thabesian veins are the most are the most abundant in the right atrium and decreasing in number in the right ventricle, left atrium, and left ventricle. And actually, Joe, 
in the left atrium and left ventricle, they are almost non-existent. And some people believe they are entirely non-existent in the left atrium and left ventricle. Of course, it's physiologic dependent, patient to patient. But even people who've studied this in depth uh, believe that it's pretty much non-existent in the left side and relatively hit or miss in existence, by the way, even in the right ventricle. But the function of these veins is to return the venous blood from the subendocardial layer of the myocardium and empties directly into those atria on the corresponding ventricle, usually only the right side. So there are venoluminal veins which empty directly into the chambers of the heart. They also consist of venosinusoidal veins which indirectly drain into the cardiac chambers via the subendocardial sinusoids. There are arterial luminal veins which connect the small arterial vessels of the inner myocardium with the cardiac chambers. And there's also arterial sinusoidal veins which connect the small arterial vessels with the subendocardial sinusoids. So you see, there's a pretty vast network of these, of these uh, systems known as the Thebesian system, which is allowing venous drainage to empty directly into the heart. So here's a, another picture of it that basically you see on the left side, the normal kind of anatomy. And, but when you get to the right there encircled in yellow, you have these Thebesian veins, which don't allow, which allow some of the venous blood to empty directly into an atrial or ventricular chamber and, and, and diverting some of it to not travel down the coronary sinus. So here's another picture of it. So hopefully there, you see the blue arrow, if you would have perfused the coronary sinus, what you're hoping is that all that blood is gonna go directly into the capillaries and do the perfusion service that, you, that you're hoping to do. But in reality, what you have, go ahead, next slide, Dave, is that some of this blood is shunted away from the capillaries and goes down to the Babesian vein. And the reason I bring all of these up is because when the, remember I said the driving force for retrograde, uh, perfusion retrograde cardioplegia was the fact that we were very afraid and concerned that we weren't able to get adequate cardioplegia past the patient's blockages in the regular antegrade fashion. Well, when people started talking about going, giving blood and cardioplegia up the coronary sinus, a lot of people said, well, well hold the phone a second. You've got this Thebesian system, which is going to allow blood to never make it to the capillaries in the first place. You're going to be helping of a fair amount, who knows exactly how much amount, but some is going to be shunted right into the right ventricular chamber, and especially because this Thebesian system is so heavily prevalent in the right ventricle, we're going to run into a lot of right ventricular failure. This was the big concern. So there was a lot of research and controversy that occurred largely throughout the 90s. And this was a very hot topic for quite a while. So this brings up a lot of research, as I said, about right ventricle protection. And here's a paper, Journal of Thoracic Cardiovascular Surgery, 1995. Um, Alan and his uh, co colleagues, retrograde cardioplegia perfused the right ventricle. So I'm, gonna, I'm bringing this up for, to make a point. So go ahead. Um, what were their conclusions in this particular paper? They had four conclusions. One of them was retrograde cardioplegia provides poor right ventricular myocardial perfusion as assessed by contrast echocardiography. They basically injected uh, cardioplegia into the coronary sinus that, had, that was radiopaque and they measured the echocardiographic contrast that went through the myocardium. They also measured coronary osteal drainage, the left ventricle, uh, the left coronary artery, and the right coronary osteal drainage. And they found that this poor perfusion, they, they believe they, they found evidence that there was poor perfusion, especially in the right ventricle, and it was inadequate, inadequate to meet the myocardial demands as demonstrated by high right ventricular oxygen extraction after prolonged retrograde infusion. The other two conclusions they had was that they said that surgeons must not rely solely on retrograde cardioplegia 
for right ventricular myocardial protection. And number four, they said this concept is especially important if you're going to give a continuous warm blood cardioplegia because myocardial requirements are then higher. So remember back in those days, Joe, people were experimenting with continually perfusing the heart, keeping it warm, not doing all the very, very cold cardioplegia thinking damages and things that were coming from that. But just, just keep the heart warm, not physiologically perfused, and let's try it by doing retrograde. Well, they're pointing out that because you have this Debesian system, you're not going to be able to do that very well for the right ventricle. Mm -hmm. Was touting. And you had a lot of this uh, conversation back in the 90s, Joe. So my question is, so in 40 years of retrograde cardioplegia, why, why this has not been an issue? And I think you might agree, Joe, that we have now 40 years or so of retrograde cardioplegia. And by and large, we don't have a problem with right ventricular failure. And I'm going to talk about what happened and why that is. Yeah, well, I, do have all, to, I do have to say, I do have to say one thing. I, I do not believe, I mean, you may be correct, but I don't believe that retrograde cardioplegia has been around 40 years. Yeah, um, they've been tinkering with it since about um, the, the, the early 80s, late 70s, but you very rarely heard much about it. It was mostly retrograde blood flow, not retrograde cardioplegia. Yeah, so, uh, okay. Let's say maybe 30 or 35 years. So when you look at the flow of cardioplegia when you're trying to give it retrograde, what, you, what, you, what the theory has been, and the theory was for, for decades, was that you're giving blood in the coronary sinus, then it bifurcates into the coronary veins, and then into tinier venules, and then these venules are now allowing some of this cardioplegia to be shunted down the Thebesian veins and empty into the, to the chambers, basically uh, shunting around the capillaries. And some of that cardioplegia would make it to the capillaries and to the arterioles and eventually out of the coronary osteo. So this is what the fear, some of this, uh, and who knows how, how significant, uh, maybe it's patient dependent, of this cardioplegia was being not making it to the capillaries. Well, as it turns out, go ahead. The, um, the fact is that this is not the pathway physiology. We were basically have, have, have discovered that really this is not the, um, the, the physiologic pathway that's happening. Next slide. The physiologic pathway that's happening is that, that the Thebesian veins communicate with the capillaries so that the coronary sinus uh, uh, retrograde uh, cardioplegia is going to make it largely to the capillaries and then make its way to the Thebesian veins and also onto the arterioles and out of the coronary ostium. And so this was one reason why this right ventricular failure fear that we had for many years hasn't really played itself out. There's a second reason. So number two, the reason why right ventricular failure hasn't played, played out to be uh, the big fear that we thought was that very few people um, ended up giving just retrograde cardioplegia. Most everybody gives the antegrade dose and then subsequent doses of retrograde cardioplegia. So the combination of antegrade to initiate cardioplegia and retrograde as maintenance doses emerged so strongly, and I believe it's probably incredibly routine nowadays. Well, that antegrade infusion provides a rapid diastolic arrest and, and pretty well global hyperthermia. But the retrograde provides a uniform flow to the compromised myocardium. Because remember, it's coming in now through the backside and hitting the blockages from the and dispersing its, its um, flow to the compromised myocardium that would be happening with antegrade flow. So the retrograde provides a uniform flow to the compromised myocardium and also gives a homogeneous and deeper myocardial pooling. This was, this was proven in many studies. Find delivery that most people use, uh, we've reached a, a pretty optimal muscle preservation, myocardial preservation because of this. So these are the two reasons why the big fear of right ventricular failure 
in the last several decades has not reared its ugly head hardly at all. So let's look at a few clinical significant uh, items that I, that I discovered in doing this talk. The clinical significance of retrograde cardioplegia in the case of hypertrophied myocardium. Now here's a study by Kamasi and his colleagues, and this is recent, January of 2022, on an online uh, textbook called Stat Pearls. This is a quote from this article, clearly established as the most vulnerable region of the myocardium to ischemia. The subendocardium is particularly vulnerable in the hypertrophied ventricle. Retrograde cardioplegia has been shown to be superior at protecting the hypertrophied subendocardium than anagrade cardioplegia alone. So let's look at another one here, the clinical significance of retrograde cardioplegia and this whole concept of the Thebesian veins. This is an article way back in 1990 by Monsin and colleagues uh, in AACN Clinical Issues of Critical Care Nursing, retrograde coronary sinus perfusion, a new approach to cardioplegia delivery. Back in 1990, uh, this was still a pretty revolutionary concept. And the quote from this article is, the coronary veins are responsible for 85% of the cardiac venous blood flow, that the Bezian veins are responsible for the remaining 15% and are largely concentrated in the right atrium and right ventricle. And I can tell you that there's been many, many articles who would claim that it is far less than that, that the Debesian veins are either non-existent or in, the, or in more in the 1% to 3% uh, of quantity of controlling uh, coronary venous blood flow. You can read many articles. And by the way, it is patient-dependent. Uh, in this same article, they say significance between coronary collateral. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the other clinical significance I want to talk about is with regard to coronary collaterals. Okay, what does retrograde cardioplegia um, play? How does this interplay with when we have significant coronary collaterals? In this same article, they state significance between coronary collateral circulation and percent of myocardial opacification after anagrade and retrograde cardioplegia. Again, they did uh, opacification highlights of the myocardium. In patients with good collaterals, the opacification difference between anagrade and retrograde cardioplegia was not statistically significant. 66% plus or minus 10 versus 76% plus or minus 15. However, the next slide says, whereas in patients with poor collaterals, myocardial opacification during retrograde cardioplegia was significantly greater, 44% plus or minus 15 versus 81% plus or minus, plus, plus or minus 9%. So you had a much greater effect. When you have a patient with collaterals, a lot of collaterals, your retrograde cardioplegia is far more beneficial than, than just your anagram. So let's look at the clinical significance of how we deliver the cardioplegia, either anagrade alone, retrograde alone, or the combination of the two. This is an article with, with Darlington and Buckberg and their colleagues back in 1989. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, probably the biggest hitter and publisher of cardioplegia uh, and myocardial protection was Dr. Buckberg. So he, they published an article called Studies of Retrograde Cardioplegia. Advantages of anagrade retrograde cardioplegia to optimize distribution in the jeopardized myocardium. So they quote, this study tests the hypothesis that retrograde slash anagrade cardioplegia delivery can overcome the limitations of poor cardioplegic distribution from either technique alone. So they took 20 dogs, and of course these dogs had healthy uh, and, and open coronary arteries, so they purposely jeopardized the LAD artery. And then they gave integrate cardioplegia at 200 cc's a minute. They then did retrograde cardioplegia at 135 cc's a minute, keeping the coronary sinus pressure below 50. And then they did the dogs on a combination of integrate, then retrograde cardioplegia with a 200 integrate dose followed by a 400 retrograde dose. So if you look at the, the, the data that they, that they came up with 
and you see on the left there, ACP, anti-grade cardioplegia, the time that it took to arrest these hearts, again, with a compromised uh, LAD, was around three and a half to four and a half minutes with anti-grade alone. With retrograde alone, they actually had a, uh, a, more, a little bit faster arrest, somewhere between three to four minutes. But when they did the anti-grade and then switched to retrograde, the, the arrest time was way down to two and a half to three and a half minutes. All right, so the, the perfusion gem of the week. As you guys know, this is something I come up with. could be absolutely anything, trivia, a meeting, uh, some type of perfusion news. And this episode's gem of the week is the paper that I myself oh, published wow. on retrograde cardioplegia in 1989, Joe. 33 years ago, I wrote a paper. Donald Drinkwater? Yeah, I'm going to talk about You knew Donald Drinkwater? Huh? Yep. Oh my God! Yeah, drink water, right? So, so what I'm saying is, the, the, I'm I'm patting myself on the back here. One of the reasons I picked this topic, too, uh, one day I wanted to bring this to Knowledge Nuggets, was because I actually wrote one of the very first articles in the perfusion literature, in the perfusion literature, doing retrograde cardioplegia. But it goes one step further than that, and I'm going to point that out here to you of how. Uh, uh, revolutionary this article was. We didn't do anything revolutionary in the publishing of it, but the technique that we were experimenting with is, is quite amazing to look back on. So when you look at the articles that I used for this talk up to this point, I used uh, Dr. Drinkwater, uh, 1990, thoracic, a journal of thoracic cardiovascular surgery, 1990, a new simplified method of optimizing cardiology delivery talking about anti-grade or retrograde cardioplegia. Drink water again in 1992, basically touting a new technique for open heart surgery, journal thoracic cardiovascular surgery, along with Dr. Buckberg, cardioplegic solution. Dr. Gundry, 1992, uh, touting this you know new optimal cardioplegic solution for redo operations, basically touting retrograde cardioplegia. Go ahead, David. Two more articles I used for this talk. Dr. Buckberg back in 1989, anti-grade retrograde combination of blood cardioplegia to ensure you know good distribution, touting a new technique. Dr. Sabaya and his colleagues back in 1991, touting retrograde cardioplegia through the coronary sinus and aortic valve studies. They did 500 patients. So why do I bring this up? When you look at the paper that I wrote, Joe, in 1989, it predated all of those researchers, and those were all in surgical journals. Mine was published in the Perfusion Journal, Journal of Respiratory Technology, way back volume 21, number six, in summer of 1989. And this was called Technique, Continuous Retrograde Cardioplegia, followed by Warm Blood Antigrade Infusion. Why do I call it Warm Blood Antigrade Infusion? This was 10 years ahead of the, of the time that the, the, that the phrase hotshot ever was heard of. So what we did is this cardiac surgeon and myself, he invited me to fly out to Emory University back in about 1988. And we watched Dr. Pacifico perform this supposedly you know, revolutionary cardioplegia technique where they were giving continuous retrograde cardioplegia the entire case then they gave a continuous warm anti-grade blood infusion. There was never a cessation of the infusion of the heart during the entire operation. Not like intermittent doses like we commonly do now. But go ahead, David. So I'm gonna show you a couple things from this. So in this article, we did 50 adult patients. They were cabbages placed on routine bypass, cooled to 28 degrees, and we did a two-phase cardioplegia technique. Phase one was an initial dose of 1,000 cc's of Plegisol, followed by continuous or nearly continuous retrograde cardioplegia to maintain the septal temperature between 6 and 12 degrees. So we did an initial dose of anagrade and immediately turned on the retrograde cardioplegia, and I continually, very slowly, infused that retrograde cardioplegia, and we monitored this by the septal temperature, keeping it 
between 6 and 12 degrees. Now, if the septal temp ever went below 6 degrees, we then turned the infusion off and waited for it to come back up a bit. Now, the maximum time that we ever halted the retrograde uh, cardioplegia was 12 minutes, and that occurred on one patient. So now phase two was an antigrade infusion of warm pump blood over a 15. So the surgeon would give me about a 20-minute heads up before we took the cross clamp off, and we would switch from our cold retrograde continuous uh, cardioplegia infusion to now a warm blood infusion retrograde also. The initial was um, 500 cc's of warm blood, but it was hyperkalemic. We were afraid that if we just gave warm blood to the heart, that the heart would begin to fibrillate. So we decided we should give 20 milliequivalents of potassium to keep the heart quiet. But then, of course, we continued to infuse the blood with the, the heart with warm blood, and it was straight arterial pump blood, keeping the aortic pressure 75 to 85. I'm sorry, I said we did it retrograde. This was an antigrade hot shot, just like we do a lot of times nowadays. So let me show you the one thing of why this is so interesting. There was no renditions of how this catheter looked. I had to hire an artist to draw what this retrograde, you know, no one had heard of this retrograde catheter looked like and how you might insert it. And so I had this artist draw this for me. So this is part of figure one in my article. But more interesting than that is back in 1988 and 89, go ahead, David, when we were doing this, it was virtually unheard of to not defibrillate the heart, right? So this is what we discovered, was that as we continually gave this warm shot over a 20-minute period, 20, approximately 20-minute period, the heart spontaneously uh, reinstituted its own rhythm. This was unheard of in 1988 and 1989. And you see there the EKG strips that I saved from a patient and approximately the time frame of how it would slowly reinstitute itself. And if you look at the very bottom there, continuous antigrade warm blood infusion results in gradual reinstitution of the patient's rhythm. The patient studied 94% experienced no cardiac fibrillation. This was completely unheard of at this time. And if you um, look at the Buckberg articles and the Gundry articles and the Drinkwater articles that I put up there, none of them were giving a warm infusion. It was all about retrograde cold cardioplegia combining with antigrade or some type of technique. So we didn't invent this. We actually saw this being done. And when we did this and published this article, people thought we were crazy. They're like, what? It, you know, no one's ever heard of this. But it's so interesting now to look back 33 years later and this is, um, you know, something that all of us have probably experienced in some form or another, where we have reinstitution of the heart and we don't fibrillate the hearts and shock the patients very much anymore. So there you go. Very uh, good. Excellent, one. John. Congratulations yeah, on yeah. that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. If you guys want to email me, john.ingram at perfweb.us. Love to hear from you. I love to hear comments, questions, and particularly suggestions for a future topic. I'd love to hear that. We're always looking for great ideas. So I think we're up to our uh, panel discussion, Joe. What do you think? Very good. Excellent. I, I enjoyed the gem of the week very, very much. Um, but right. I, you know, I, it's it's funny to me, you know, to, in some in some ways that we're we're still we still talk about cardioplegia. We still, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think we have truly refined yet the optimal myocardial protection strategy in all cases. I think that we're really good, but post-cardiotomy syndrome with the likely cause of being uh, inadequate myocardial protection still exists. We still have patients that we that are failing to wean from bypass and that we have to transition to VA ECMO and hopefully the heart will recover enough to be weaned off or they have to get uh, uh, accelerated up to getting a VAT or something else implanted so that they can go on surviving. Everything else worked out fine, but there's a problem, whether it be the right heart, whether it be the left heart, whether it be both sides. Um, we still see that. 
which I find incredibly interesting that uh, that that still exists for as many years as we have, you know, dealt with myocardial preservation for uh, open heart surgery, whether it be that or whether it be uh, even stroke rate. When you look at that, that's certainly improved a tremendous amount. Our stroke rate and and even our 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 uh, perioperative infarction rate has has certainly come down a lot from where we were. But I see it as having plateaued. I see it as sort of not changing much over the past ten or fifteen years. Uh, I don't know what your view is, but that's my perception of it. Well, the, uh, the Del Nido and the Custodial was a, um, probably the biggest steps that have happened in the last 15 or 20 years. Prior to that, it was a lot of, uh, you know, how cold is too cold, uh, how, how long intermittent, and how big of a dose should the subsequent doses be, how rapidly should we give it, what the agents inside the blood cardioplegia should be, should it be all blood, should it be four to one. There's still people out there using crystalloid cardioplegia and they just squirt a little blood in the Plegisol bag and call it place the other day. They, yeah. they actually do, that's something that goes way back to the 70s mm -hmm. and 80s. Um, and uh, and I there's think people using, there's still people using Quest and the uh, the uh, microplege system, which, you know, and, and having excellent results with it. I mean, I, I, I use it, so I do both. I do the Del Nido, which I don't like for coronaries. I think it makes a lot of good sense for a, you know, a, a triple valve replacement, double valve replacement, maybe root replacement, something like that where you're going to be there for a much longer period of time. It helps to maintain the flow of, this, of the operation. I can understand that. But it's so easy to give continuous retrograde um, that I don't necessarily quite understand. And then we do the Del Nido. There's modified Del Nido. Everybody that uses Del Nido in the adult population is using modified Del Nido. It is not the Del Nido technique. Um, and then, uh, you know, how much of it should be blood? How much of it to be crystalloid? Uh, you know, the microplege uh, advocates... Uh, have great data that shows uh, a not insignificant amount of myocardial edema that occurs when you use uh, crystalloid or even even four to one when you have a large crystalloid load that's given to the heart and that's what the microplege folks feel that they are attenuating and they have strong data to suggest it. There's strong data to suggest that Del Nido is great. There's strong data to suggest Plegisol works. There's strong data for single dose. There's strong data for multi-dose. There's strong data for giving a shot down every coronary. There's strong data really for all of this. And yet we still see problems occur in every single one of those techniques. It's not one technique you see it a perioperative infarct of 10% and you only see it 1% with this one over here. Now, those numbers are extreme. I'm just using, I just pulled numbers out, not necessarily numbers that are, that are, that are, that are you know, from any data. They just, just to illustrate a point. And so what are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I, um, I think all these techniques can work in the right uh, in the right uh, culture, in the right environment. For example, if you have a very fast surgeon with short cross clamp times, you can get away with a whole lot that people who have very long cross clamp times cannot, right? You could probably get away with a good couple doses of Plegisol and you're off unclamping in 40 minutes every single day. You're going to get away with, with a lot. And then you have another place where you have long cross clamps and you're giving all kinds of cardioplegia and you seem to have a whole lot of problems. Here's what I would always said to people. You should look at your balloon pump insertion percentage for people who come into the OR not on a balloon pump, but leave the OR on a balloon pump. Mm -hmm. If you have an inordinately high amount of people who are leaving the OR in cardiac failure and need a cardiac support device, I would say you need to address and look at your myocardial preservation technique. 
whatever that is. Well, you I know, you, on the other hand, John, and I, I, you know, and I'm only doing this to be the devil's advocate. Okay. I'm only saying yeah. this because, you know, what I hear and what you will hear is my patients have this problem because I get the sickest patients. We hear right. that all the time. And, right. uh, and it, sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not true. And any one person doesn't always get these 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 cases it happens to the best of them and for whatever reason the ones that you know are struggling for whatever reason technically and take a much longer period of time so sometimes i wonder to myself how did this patient actually make it they're sitting up the next day eating breakfast and i, yeah. I i'm like how um, the hell did how did this happen but the guy that's really uh, fast got thrown a curveball. Something happened. Something happened. And I don't necessarily think that we frequently know what that. Yeah, there's patterns. I agree with you. But I do yeah, think yeah. that there are these times when you're just scratching your head saying, how did this happen? Why did this patient end up like this? And then you're scratching your head wondering, how did this patient not end up in really bad yeah. shape? Yeah, I've done five-hour cross clamps with very old-fashioned cardioplegia technique, and the patient soared off pump without a balloon pump. You know, I mean, it's so. But as far as more difficult older patients, we're all seeing that the, the, the whole population of people entering for cardiac surgery has changed over the last 10, 20, 30 years. When you, the advent of stents and angioplasty has pushed patients way back five, 10 years or more before we see them. The whole uh, lo you know, longer life, people that can live longer on pharmaceuticals and, conge and conge congestive heart failure before we see them. Uh, VADS has prolonged uh, people. So we see that people are all more sick. And so what I say is you've had the outlier patient. You're gonna have the outlier one that does very well and shouldn't have, and the one that does very poorly and you thought you did everything right. You have to look at your frequency of insertion of post-bypass of ventricular assist devices. Or need for rocket fuel or whatever the case may yeah, be. Yeah, right. You have yeah, your, your pharmaceuticals. And so, you know, the patient didn't come in on a balloon pump. Here's a simple way that I like to tell, you know, newer, newer people in the field that ask questions like this. The patient came in not on a balloon pump. You thought you preserved the heart for an hour and 15 minutes cross clamp, and now the patient must have a balloon pump. We did not make time stand still for that patient's myocardium. That was what we were trying to do. Somewhere along the line, that didn't happen. Now, yeah, and it's not always, it's not always, that's not always the reason, though. You know, sometimes right, it, it could, could be, be the graft trauma. isn't that good. Should everybody measure graft flows is graft flows and having the pulsatility index like you see with the devices the transonic device and the the medistim device both that measure these these two these things flow and and patency and runoff um are they you know are they are they are they they're accurate but are they really indicative of what can happen what can everything that could go wrong do we get air down these corners do we get trash down these corners um are there strategies that we need to start developing to prevent those things from happening i think what part of our problem is we don't know why there's still a mystery why did this happen was it what? poor distribution was it not enough cardioplegia was the wrong type of cardioplegia was it trash was it air was it some embolic event so those are all questions i think that need to be answered so so two things there the patient came in and was heart was not revascularized now the heart is revascularized now maybe there is a one graph that's not so great but the patient came in didn't even have that so in 2017, I was chief and the surgeon I worked with did flow measurements on every single graft before we left the OR and, and every single graft that it was a printout put in the patient's chart that the surgeon could then document and say, when I was completed this surgery, these were the flows on my graft. And on rare occasion, we did redo a graft, we did a distal, and improve it. Most of the time we didn't have to, the, the flows were good. 
And I think knowing that we were going to measure the flow probably helped. Um, there was pretty meticulous on doing the distals, let me put it that way. And we had long bypass times. But the flow rates down the graphs were always, you know, right within what, what the norm should have been for the, for the measurement that they were using and with those uh, flow probes. And um, that, that, so, so that's one thing. But, but like I said, the patients come in, they're not revascularized. Now they are revascularized and their myocardium is not functioning as well as when they came in when they weren't revascularized. So th there, is, there is reasons. I've, I've seen things like a debris down a graft or trauma, that the surgeons traumatized the myocardium in some way. You don't see that very often, but years ago we'd have some type of, uh, you know, issue with that. Um, what, what else can you think of? I mean, if you have a lot of ventricular assist devices like balloon pumps occurring at an institution, I think it's cause to, you know, assess, you know, what can we do better here? I totally agree with you. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's a great point, and I am sorry to have to end this you know, so abruptly today, because we could go on, I know, for a very long time, but I have one of my, uh, one of my most valued uh, uh, team members who has decided or needs to move to another location because of aging parents. And uh, so we're going to, we have a little party for them. We have to go and I have to get all the way into the woodlands from where I'm at now. So right, okay. I'm going to, John, it's been great. It was a wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful presentation. Uh, I want to thank you again. Tomorrow we're going to have the Tammy Sparacino Journal Club at, two at 11 o'clock. Uh, so it's going to be 11 o'clock to noon, and it's going to be on neurocognitive. I'm sorry. It's noon to one. Okay. The, the website says, uh, says, uh, no, it says 11 to 12. That's what the website says. So I'm, I'm a little confused. Yeah, that's what everybody probably has looked at. But uh, so tomorrow we're going to have neurocognitive decline following cardiopulmonary bypass. I think that's going to all that's going to really dovetail into this very nicely because whether we're talking about uh, myocardial injury or we're talking about brain injury, our job are is to protect those organs. That's what we are there for. And I think that uh, though our numbers look great when you compare it to the whole country. Uh, but are they really that great? And I think that uh, there's there's room for improvement, and I'd like to see that start happening over the next decade. Thank well, you all very much. John, thank, thank you. Great you. seeing you. Good luck. Have a good day at work, and I will hopefully see you tomorrow. And thank you, everyone, for your time today, and we'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Goodbye.